Um, we are nearing the end of the book of Esther. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. I will be very surprised if we don't complete Esther next week, um, which means that we will soon be starting into uh, the book of Exodus. Um, you, you probably know that uh, that's uh, slightly intimidating to me, but I'll be counting on your patience as well as your uh, own work at helping us keep straight on the, on the path of Exodus. There's a, a lot of details there, and we will, we will do our best with it. Um, I told you earlier that I might do a portion of the book, and I've discarded that pretty handily. As I continue to study the book and think about it, it isn't that you could do half and somewhere. There are sections that we will probably not go into near as much detail as some others, but we'll work our way through that. I also did recently had occasion to read First and Second Thessalonians, and I went, oh, this would be fun, and it looked easier, and I was tempted, but we'll do Exodus, and then we'll think about First and Second Thessalonians. So let's get over into Exodus chapter 8 today. And uh, yeah, let's do Esther first. I'm not ready for Exodus. You know, the day's going to come when I substitute so many words, I'm just going to have to quit. But, and maybe we're past that point, and I just don't know it. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, Esther, Esther chapter 8. And just a very quick review of Esther 7. Esther, in chapter 7, she holds the second banquet with the king and Haman. And as they're drinking the wine, the king again says, So what's your request, after Esther? Makes it clear he wants to satisfy whatever's going on for her. And she says, if I found favor, if it pleases the king, which is the standard way to start any request to the king, I want my life and the lives of my kinsmen. We've been sold to be killed. If it was just slavery, I would not have bothered you with it. But we are sold to death. And the king seems very surprised. Not more than seemed. He was very surprised, I'm sure. Well, who would do such a thing? And she says, this Haman, this evil man, our enemy. Um, and so uh, Haman then is in terror. Um, it would be very uh, much of an understatement to say it was, a, for Haman, a b very bad end to a very bad day. Uh, if you remember, the previous chapter was about things that didn't go well for him that day. And so the king uh, leaves the company of Esther and Haman to goes out in the garden. Don't not sure why. Maybe he was trying to get control of himself before he took action. But as the king returns, he sees Haman. The in the New American Standard says falling on Esther's couch, and clearly uh, the king assumes some sort of assault because that's his words. Are you going to assault the queen while I'm in the house? And at that moment, the servants covered Haman's face. To make matters worse, at that very same time, Harbana, the eunuch before the king, in other words, one of his closest attendants, said, Indeed, the gallows that Haman built, Haman, the gallows that Haman requested are standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits tall, which we know is about 75 feet high, built to hang Mordecai. And he doesn't just stop there. 
the one who spoke good on behalf of the king. He reminds the king that this morning we were out honoring Mordecai and Haman has built a gallows to hang him on it. And the chapter ends with the proclamation of the king, hang Haman on it. And indeed he was hung. Which brings us to Esther chapter 8. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Who will read those verses for us, please? On that day, King Aresurus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king before Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the king seems right before, and the, and it, the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing to, in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters revised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then king We're going to stop with six. Sorry. We'll pick seven up in just a minute. So on the same day in verse one. <clears throat> so this has been a very long packed day. But on that same day, uh, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is given to Queen Esther. Uh, Persian custom, uh, if someone was a traitor, their property and the things they had dominion over becomes property of the king. So now the house of Haman is clearly he's been a traitor in the eyes of the king. And so now all of this, whatever was in his purview becomes in the purview of the king. And when it says the house of Haman, what does that phrase mean? Well, he has a house, and it probably was a grand one if we could build a gallows by it 75 feet tall, but <clears throat> it's more than that, isn't it? The house of Haman means Haman, the things he had influence over, I mean, his project, I mean, this is everything. He was a very influential man, and so the king is now taking over those areas where, where he was influential. Um, and it was given to who? Well, ultimately, he gave it to Queen Esther. The king did. And the queen then put Mordecai in charge of it. Now, we also see in verse 1 that Mordecai is there before the king. And why is he now there before the king? Now, was he part of the king's uh, group before? He, was, he sat in the gate. He was an official of some sort, fairly, fairly high, but not, nothing, nothing on the order of Haman, uh, because Haman spent his time in the king's palace. 
But Mordecai was in the king's gate doing some sort of an official act, something that was in those in that realm. And but now he can be right with the king and Esther. Why is that? What changed? Esther disclosed their relationship. And what was their relationship? They were cousins, but she disclosed, I'm sure, more than that. Um, because of some of the actions we see, if nothing else. Because what was the nature of their relationship as cousins? Father-daughter, that's right. Mordecai took the position of a father figure in her life to the point that when she was selected to be a potential queen, he gave her the directions, didn't he? What did he tell her? You remember? Don't say you're a Jew. And then when everything goes down the tube, so to speak, with regard to Haman and his plot to kill the Jews, who influences Esther? Mordecai. He's the one there with the advice. You need to go to the king. It's more than an advice. It's a direction. It's an order. You need to go to the king. And, of course, her reply was, that's dangerous. If the king doesn't want to talk to me, then I die. And he, he makes it clear to her. The Jews are going to be saved one way or another, but if you don't go to the king, you, you, you will not be saved. And... Even if you go to the king and die, you're going to die anyway. Do you think you're going to escape this punishment that Haman's got in mind? Uh, or this revenge might be a better word than punishment. And so Mordecai has been leading her all the way through this. Her very act of asking for the banquets is a direct result of Mordecai saying, you've got to get in front of the king with this issue. And so Mordecai's in the back providing leadership to Esther all the way through. And so Esther has revealed some portion of that, if not all of it, to the king. And so now Mordecai is welcome in the king's presence because of the role that he played in the relationship that he had. Um, and so in verse 2, we see something rather significant. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And that's when Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And so that signet ring, what's significant about that? Where, what part has it played in our stories, our stories, our events? Any document sealed by the ring cannot be reversed. Well, yes. Okay, we're going to spend some time with that a little bit later. But yeah, the, the signet ring is the power of the king. If you've got the signet ring... And the, his authority, you can go about and do things, and they become like the king did them to the point it's binding even on the king. Now, who had the signet ring before? Haman, and that's how he got the orders out. King Ahasuerus had an idea it was coming. Maybe he didn't realize they were Jews or, or what, but he knew that Haman had these plans. That's when he gave him the signet ring, so he had the authority to carry them out. And uh, so uh, in, in, the, in the course of doing all that, he has got his signet ring back. Do you think Haman left, let that signet ring very far out of his sight while he had it? How would you want to have to go to 
we had high security keys at Wolf Creek. Mm -hmm. And if you lost a high security key, admitting it was more painful than if it was not a high security key. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you kept closer tabs on them. I mean, I never lost any keys, but uh, I knew some people that did. Knew a guy that lost a high security key and he really didn't want to reveal it. And I talked him into doing it very soon because you don't want to say, well, I lost it three weeks ago. You know, well, what were you doing? But anyway, that's a really pretty small thing. But the signet ring of the king, how would you like to show up and have the king say, by the way, I want my ring back for a little while. I got some documents I want to process. Well, I think I left it on the dresser at home. Not going to play well, is it? The, the good thing about that is that when Haman is revealed and the king wants his signet ring back, well, there's Haman right there. Get that ring from him before you take him to the gallows. And so he's got the ring there. But it's, it's interesting that he took it and gave it to Mordecai. And so the king is quick to do that. We'll talk about that. Well, we'll talk about it right here just a little bit. Does it, well, <laughs> I've got another section. I'm, let me save that for a little bit. But one of the things we haven't talked about here is what happened to Haman's family? Well, looking ahead a little bit, his wife Zeresh is never mentioned again. We don't know what happens to Zeresh. And when he was complaining about Mordecai, he was complaining to some friends in another place they're called advisors. And we don't know what happens to them either. We will find out in chapter 9 what happens to his sons. But Haman's family is pretty well not seen. But when... Mordecai is given authority over the house of Haman. You can imagine that was pretty significant. Uh, he was in a position of being number two man in the Persian Empire, and he undoubtedly had used that to his own advantage considerably uh, to have probably significant amount of goods and uh, things that he was working on and had a lot of influence within the community. So. Uh, that was probably a pretty big thing. Um, and so we get down to Esther uh, 8, verse 3. And Esther goes to the king again. And it says she fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. So she is overcome with some emotion, understandable. Uh, we've dealt with Haman, but what about all of the Jews and the families and so on? And it says in verse 4 then, the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. So where did this happen? Had the king and the entourage moved over to his palace? Were they still in the living quarters? Where were they? We really don't know. But wherever they were, the king still had his scepter with him. And she goes a bit beyond some of the protocol to already be at his feet weeping and pleading before he extends to her the scepter. But he does extend to her the scepter. And so that gives her a bit more... A freedom to speak, maybe courage with it, 
And so arrest, arrest, Esther stood and she said, and listen to this, if it pleases the king and if I have found favor before him and the matter seems proper to the king and I am pleasing in his sight, she knows she's asking a big request and she's making it very clear. It's up to you. I hope you see it this way um, and, and honors him in several ways. But he says, she says, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. So she's asking the king to do something to undo what Haman has written. And... There's probably a couple of things that we ought to say about that. Um, and, and that's found down in verse 6 as she goes ahead um, because she says, gives the reason why she wants this done. And what's the reason, what is the reason why? Yeah, it, it, it it's almost goes back to her original request. Has it been satisfied yet? What was her request to the king before Haman was revealed back there in chapter 7? Spare my life and my people. Has that been done yet? So the, the issue that was the driving force for her hasn't been resolved. The person behind it has been exposed and by now has been hung probably at least he's on his way to the gallows so she wants him to undo what has been done in terms of this written direction go back to Esther 119 and this takes us clear back to the king's wife that was not as obedient as he wanted her to be and so her unwillingness to go along with what he asked for a dance in the big party uh, was disrupting to a lot of things, including the king's own uh, comfort level with, I'm in charge here, how can she say no? And so the advisors come up with an answer, and a piece of that is in Esther 119. Somebody read that for us. Therefore... If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Okay. So what's, if, if a royal decree is made... What what about it makes it difficult to do what Esther's asking? Not to be repealed. Can't be repealed. Not even the king can undo it. Uh, that sounds a bit um, difficult to be the king, doesn't it? Uh, kind of even assumes that kings don't make mistakes. <laughs> I mean, how many of us think if we were king... 
we could make royal decrees and every time we did it we would know well there's no reason we'll ever need or want to repeal this but um, that's a characteristic of it now go over to Esther 3 and let's look at 9 through 11 Esther 3 9 through 11 If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be eliminated. And I pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also. Do with them as you please. So when... Haman brings his idea to the king uh, saying there's these people out here that follow their own laws and don't follow your laws and you shouldn't really put up with them. Euphemism for they shouldn't exist. How does the king respond? What does he give him? The signet ring and the authority to go do as he pleases. And if we kept reading we would see that they brought all the right people together and they put together all the right decrees in, every, in all the right languages, to all the provinces, and they send it out everywhere. And so it is one of those royal decrees. And that signet ring is a piece of what made that uh, fully um, effective as a law in the lands of the Medes and the Persians. And so there's a problem with Esther's request. Which, by the way, who has the signet ring now? Mordecai. So Mordecai may be in a position to help out, but the king's going to make the response. Um, what do you think about the king's quickness in giving his signet ring out? Well, the good news is that uh, Mordecai is going to be much more uh, on the king's side of things than his own side as compared to Haman. Um, but yeah, he, he just, I don't know, he seemed like a ruler. I mean, even in the deal with Vashti, and, and maybe the, there was some urgency there because this could be disruptive to, to the order of things within the kingdom, but he, he certainly jumped on the first thing that sounded good to him that suggested instead of, I mean, how, how many, if you were giving somebody advice that had to make really significant decisions, would you say, well, think about it 10 minutes and then do it? Or would you say, you know what, options, sleep on it, pray about it, which it doesn't ever, prayer doesn't ever appear in the book of Esther, um, other than the fasting is clearly connected with prayers on the part of the Jews, but it's not said per se. But this, this king doesn't seem to be too concerned about handing out his authority here and there. We, we know that all of this was a part of God's sovereign plan for the people that were in the Medo-Persian Empire as Jews. So, you know, this is God working out his plan, but at the same time, uh, part of what God used was some real foolish, quick actions on the part of a king that didn't pay too much attention to what is going on at times, it might seem. So let's go down and read verses 7 through 14. Who would be kind enough to do that for us? Esther 
So King Esarera said between Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he has stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Selim, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote the name of King Asuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on the steeds sired by the royal stud. In them, the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Assuerus, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as a law in each and every province was published to all the people so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers hastened and, impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. All right, so now we see that the king turns to the queen and to Mordecai and says, Hey, I've given the house of Haman to Esther. He's been hanged on the gallows. Um, and what is the king's explanation of why he was hanged? The king himself says because he had tried to lay his hand on the Jews. It wasn't because of some of the other things that was mentioned at least as the first reason, but that he was after the Jews. And so in verse 8, um, having given the, the ring to Mordecai now, he says, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the signet ring of the king because why a decree written in the name of the king and sealed with the signet ring may not be revoked and so what does the king do with Esther's request what does he do well to Mordecai and Esther I mean the you there um, he, he's looking at them and indicating Mordecai has the authority. And so uh, what's, what personal responsibility is he choosing to take? Yeah, he kind of is not very involved on one hand. On the other hand, I'm sure if we said to the king, well, why, why didn't you get involved? He says, what do you mean get involved? I told him, you'd do whatever you want to do. So on one hand, he gave others great authority. Do you think the king had some responsibility? Do you think he played a part in this plot against the Jews? Does he bear some burden here? In the fact that he didn't know what the decree was, 
I mean, it looks like, and, and, and uh, this maybe isn't terribly important because God's working out his plan here, but it looks like the king and Haman had a very short discussion culminated with a few glasses of wine to celebrate a decision. It seems somewhat nonchalant. I mean, if, if you were coming to somebody and saying, hey, we're going to... We're, we're going to put we're going to do put to, put a race to death here. It seemed like maybe that reserved a little bit more thought. Um, I don't know that we can fault him too much in that he did say do whatever you want, um, fix it however you might like. The one what's the one thing that Mordecai and Esther maybe can't do? They've got a decree out there that's not going to go away. And what's that decree? When? Kill the Jews. Everybody can go kill the Jews and plunder them. When? The 12th month. The 12th month. As a matter of fact, we could be more specific because it lines up with what we see later in this passage. Uh, that is, uh, yeah, the 13th day of the 12th month and... It's the same day that we're going to see in the decree that Mordecai pens and sends out. And so this king is still pretty trusting. Was there some... If Mordecai were not an upright person and was not driven by God's sovereignty in this plan, uh, might he have made a pretty egregious error in doing this? I mean, that's a... That's a I mean... I'm surprised he didn't say, you write up what you want, run it by me, and then we'll send it out. Because he's really obligated himself, is a very trusting position with regard to what Mordecai might be doing. So in verse 9, any questions or comments so far? In verse 9, we call out the king's scribes, his, the people that help him with these kinds of writings. It is the third month, we're in February, March. It's the 23rd day when they start at least, when the writing begins. And so they assemble this, and it's a command to the Jews that everybody can see, including satraps, governors, and princes and provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. This is a major part of the world, and certainly if they'd killed all the Jews, it would have been very significant. And everybody gets to read it in their own script and language. And language of the Jews as well. And so this is quite an operation to even get this put together. Um, we sometimes do things here with multiple languages at the governmental level. But this would have been far more than anything we've ever experienced. And there in verse 10 it says, In the name of the king he sealed it with the ring. And then couriers were sent out by horses, horses in the lineage of the king's stallion. These are the royal horses. These horses are the best in the country, and they are speeding this communication throughout the provinces all around. And so what does this give the Jews? What is the command to them to do? Defend themselves. It starts with, I think, a very key thing, the right to assemble. They can get together, they can plan it. 
they can figure out one to another how we're going to take care of each other and so on and so on. So they have the right to dissemble. They have the right to defend their lives. And how far can they go with that? So if some group attacked you as a Jew, what would be the limitations according to the king's edict on your response? None. None. As a matter of fact, if it was an act of the army of a province, even you have the right to go after the whole army, not just the few maybe that were at the leading edge of the attack. And so this is a, a pretty strong kind of opportunity to respond, to protect themselves, and to even to have some level of vengeance upon those that might attack. And there's got to be armies all over the country. There can't be one army that's kept in Susa to take care of the world. So there's, this, there's a lot of, lot of um, military out there. Oh, and by the way, can they plunder and spoil? Yeah, that was the same thing that was indicated against the Jews. So turnabout is fair play, so to speak. So as you do this, if these people attack, uh, feel free to drag home their possessions after you've wiped them out. And of course, it's to be on their, their directive is to be doing this on the same day that Haman's letter had said to the people of the provinces to attack the Jews. So we've got it all lined up. It's on a one-day event. And so Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai is working with this letter so the Jews can be ready for the day to avenge themselves and be prepared for it. There was, in verse 14, there was one other thing mentioned there that um, is, is important. And that is, the decree was given out also in the citadel in Susa, the capital, where all this drama is taking place. Um, how do you think the people of the Persian Empire would interpret this message when they read it about the king's position regarding the Jews in the original decree? When they read this, how do you think the people are going to understand the decree that Mordecai sent out. Well, they could be looking at it either one or two ways. Knowing if they knew their previous history, they would have known that they had destroyed the Jews previously and had taken them from their home and took them to where we are today so they could have had a chance. Or the Jews could be mighty in number and could defeat them. Okay. There's one or two ways to look at it. Okay, so when the first decree was sent out by Haman to destroy the Jews, what do you think the people thought the king's position was on destroying the Jews? Yeah, it was clear the official position of the king is anti-Jewish, or we would say today anti-Semitic, right? He set up this day where it's legal and encouraged, go out and kill them all and plunder them. And now we've got this decree coming out. Does that change 
what it appears the king's position is? Pretty strong words. So what message do you suppose the people in general were receiving? Don't do it. And the king's even on the side of the Jews if you do because he's given them permission to run you down, to kill you, to kill your families and take all your possessions. So it's a pretty strong statement. Um, and, and then... Um, Well, let's just go ahead and read verses 15 through 17. I can read those for us. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So after they get the letter done and everything, Mordecai goes out from the presence of the king. How is he attired? Royally, yes. Uh, blue and white robes, is that correct? Yes, and, well, and, and also purple. Actually, the, we would latch on to purple because we know purple is the <coughs> only for royalty. But in the Persian Empire, blue and white were the official royal colors. Now, it's still true that throughout most of history, purple was reserved for people of wealth and high esteem and whatever. So he's got both, both of them covered, but the blue and white is significant in that the blue and white robes were a sign of royalty, and he also has what on his head? Crown. So he is being honored significantly. Um, at the beginning, at the, in chapter 7, we saw him being led on a horse and honored, and now in this account we see him coming out from the presence of the king with all this royalty and the gold crown and fine linen, purple, how did the city of Susa respond? Rejoicing. Now, there may be a number of answers to this question, but why? Why do you suppose Susa was rejoicing to see this? Well, the Jews were going to live, but why the city as a whole? Well, one possibility would be when the king appears at the portico, you know, you've seen it in the movies, and the royalty shows up out on the, the terrace. What do all the people do? Shout, Shout and cheer. Why? It's expected. It's the king. That's what we do for the king. And here is Mordecai with all of this royalty garb on. So that would be an expected response. But I think we would stop short if we thought that was the limitation. Go back to chapter 3, verse 15. In Esther 3, 15, 
we see the results of Haman's proclamation going out. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was what? Bewildered, perplexed, in confusion. You'll see a number of different words translated there. And we talked about it then, but why might the city have been in confusion or bewildered or perplexed at Haman's decree? It would be similar to today if we were to go out and eliminate a certain race. Many of us have friends that are of certain race. Or, I mean, they, they had businesses, they had relationships. And so to, let's just say, okay, here, have a civil war and kill each other. Mm -hmm. you're, you're setting friendships and relationships against one another. I mean, that would be a piece of it, but I know what you're going for. No, that, 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 that's a piece of it. Where, where was, what was the starting country? And I mean, it became an empire. But we've heard of the Roman Empire. We know that started in Rome, Italy, right? Where's the starting point for the Medo-Persian Empire? You know? No? No, that would be that would be the Babylonian Empire. This one came right after. And it's Persia or modern day Iran. And so you've got the Iranians, we would say today, but the Persians, and they have managed to take and spread their influence over lots of land and lots of different people groups. And so when you see the king saying, oh, by the way, on this date, we're going to eliminate one of the people groups that we've overtaken, that could create a lot of questioning. Who's next? Who's next? Why not me? How safe am I? I live next to some of these folks. What have they done? You know, lots of things to think about here when you start going about systematic elimination of people groups, particularly in a nation like this or an empire that has so many. I mean, we could point to the devastating evil time in Germany when they set out to eliminate the Jews, but we need to realize they weren't an, an, an amalgamation of lots of people groups and lots of land masses. And so it would create questions, and they were perplexed in Susa. And now Susa hears, oh, by the way, here's the other side of this story. The king has now declared that the Jews can defend themselves, and if anybody attacks them, there's no limit to what they can do in their defense. Don't you think people, okay, this is starting to make sense. The king is indicating his support for the Jews, and they're going to be allowed to defend themselves and, and take care of this. And so they may have been, many may have been rejoicing over a, a resolution that two months earlier, this other decree had come out and created all kinds of what in the world is going on. There were probably many people that went, this just isn't right. Now, it's a different culture than we have today because the king, whatever the king says is right. That's a little bit true, or a lot true. But um, this may have resolved why they were in confusion. By the way, what was the offense of the, of the Jews that brought around the original decree? What was it they did that 
caused this original decree to exist? One person is cited for Haman's hatred. And instead of just going after Haman, he decides to go after all the Jews, which of course may have to do with some of his own history and how he was a descendant of the Agagite and um, the, that his predecessing um, royalty in his own family uh, was hacked to death um, by God's command. The Jews, what kind of a response do they have? How do the Jews respond to the decree in Susa? Yeah, it's, it's feasting, it's lightness, it's gladness. It's, they feel honored that they can now be seen as worthy of defending themselves or at least having the privilege. And as this goes out through the provinces in verse 17, everywhere the decree is heard, we've got gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And in verse 17... We see this at the end. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. What does this mean? What does it mean many became Jews? Thoughts? Yeah, I didn't want to be killed. Yeah? Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly is probably some of that going on. Let's back up a half a step and say, what does it mean to become a Jew? Were they going to become physically, genetically descendants of Abraham? No, that would be silly, right? So many would become Jews religiously, proselytes, um, in one sense or another. Um, and also, it's, it's worth saying here some other things, but as they became followers of Judaism, um, what did they have to do? Well, rather than just lead you down the primrose pass, it varies a lot depending upon the era you want to talk about, what's going on in, in amongst the Jewish people and some other things, and even what kind of a Jew do you want to be. That sounds kind of weird, I know. But um, there is something called a gate proselyte, which means somebody that wants to honor God and believe in Yahweh, but they don't want to become part of all the Jewish customs and practices. Were they really Jews? I don't know what to say about this, but there was a period in history when this indeed occurred. So they would be Gentile people that honored God, but it stopped short of what's the key thing men would have to do to follow all the prescriptions of being a Jew? Circumcision. So it's definitely stopped short of circumcision and much more than that. There were accounts of people that became, uh, I'm going to use the word full Jews, but wanted to follow God in all the fullness of the Jewish expression of it. Those were a lot fewer people. And they would have to go through circumcision and do all of the things that, that Jews would do. But when you get to the days of the temple, they still were Gentiles. They still didn't go in beyond the court of, the Gentile, the court of Gentiles and women. And so there were, there were limits there even then.
Um, can you think of some people that might fit some a category like this or two that are in the Bible? How about Ruth? What was Ruth's original heritage? Moabite. She was a Moabite who married a Jewish man and her husband died and when her mother-in-law goes back to Israel she goes along and appeared to be a practicing Jew. Um, how about the people that Jonah ministered to? Jonah goes over to where? Nineveh happened to be the capital of Assyria they were the Jewishes, they were, they were the nemesis to the Jews. And God sends him there. Does he want to go? No. What's his message to the people in Nineveh? Remember? Repent. Well, he, he, he didn't emphasize that a whole lot, but that was supposed to be part of it. But the main thing is, God's going to destroy you because you're evil. How does the city of Nineveh respond? What's that? Repentance. Repentance from the king on down, including the animals. Dress them up in sackcloth and ashes and nobody's going to eat anything till I say so, says the king. We're repenting and the people were in sackcloth and ashes and in the streets and just absolutely repenting. And what does God do? Forgives. What does Jonah do? I knew it. God, I knew you were going to do this. And were these people then now Jews? Not hardly. Not like we would think of Jews in their practices. But who were they worshiping? Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever you want to... God. Uh, the God of the Jews. And so... These kinds of things happen. Now, we ought to also recognize that there are some, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'd, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I can't say for sure, but there are some that say when it says, and they became Jews, the language there could be seen as pretended to be Jews. And um, there's also some other variations with another variation if you just change a letter to an Hebrew which now we're changing a letter to an Hebrew so that makes me a little more uncomfortable that said joined with the Jews and so I, I read that in the commentaries and I'm like well okay um, but there's a phrase in here that I think helps us a lot we're given their motivation in verse 17 what is their motivation Fear of the Jews. the Jews. If you can't beat them, join them. And I, I think we could look upon their, quote, becoming Jews with, with certainly a large degree of skepticism because the scriptures tell us their motivation was fear, fear of the Jews. And so th there's probably other potential reasons that they would be, be a part of that that might not be... Um, um, motivations that we would applaud. It's pretty clear that right now the Jews are doing well in the politics of the kingdom, right? So, well, if the Jews are the 
latest trend and the thing that's going on in politics, maybe I want to be a part of it. A lot of years ago, a lot of years ago, I'd have to figure out, probably in the 80s somewhere, we had a lady come and join our church. Now then joining our church was a very, very different process. We saw her once, and that was the time she joined the church. And we soon found out why. We were kind of, at that time, even more than today, we were kind of the up-and-coming church in town for a little while. And people were checking us out, and we were kind of popular for maybe not always the best reasons. And she was running for political office, which she announced soon after she joined the church. And, of course, in her write-up, she can say, I'm a member of then Flint Hills Christian Church. And so, you know, people do things for strange reasons from time to time. Do you think she really joined our church? We never saw her again. We saw her one time and for all practical purposes. So maybe there's some of that going on. And uh, there's certainly the statement at the end of that chapter, verse 17, draws into question the legitimacy of their becoming really Jewish in their faith. So we're at a point where we've seen God really take care of the Jews and Mordecai and Esther. They prayed to get there. Uh, with the fasting, and you can just see the hand of God at work. I want us to go over to close out with 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. And I'll, I'll read those for you. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. You younger men likewise... Be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences are suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. A little bit different context, but I think the principles come across very well. Who are the proud people in this account of Esther? Who's the proudest of them all? Haman. Haman. I mean, when the king says, how do I honor somebody? Haman says, well, who could he want to honor more than me? I think he's got a massive dose of pride. What do you think? Was God opposed to Haman? Yes, for multiple reasons, but you could add this to the list. And to this list, we could say he was very much not humble. And going on a bit, who were the humble people in the story? In the account, huh? The Jews. The Jews. And Esther and Mordecai, I mean, they were bold enough, they were bold but they never told the king what he should do. They came and asked the king. They stayed in a humble condition. 
What did they do with their anxieties? Did they have anxiety? Yeah, they had anxiety. What did they do with their anxiety? Fast and prayed. And it says, cast your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Did God care for them? He took care of them, didn't he? Also, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Did we see Satan prowling around, prowling around like a roaring lion? Absolutely. Resist him. And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, <coughs> confirm, strengthen, establish you. He will raise you up at the right time. <coughs> I'm trying to lose my voice. And I, I just want us to not miss this. It's easy to talk about Esther, or fairly easy. But I also would want us to not re fail to recognize that God asks us to cast our anxieties on him. This is a command that Peter gives on God's behalf, making it clear as he does so that to the people that Peter is writing to, God cares for you. This should give us great confidence as we go through issues in our lives that bring about anxiety, that require us to act out of humility, or at least that should be our best strategy, and trusting God to do what needs done. Questions, comments? Well, I made up for last week. I kept you a few minutes extra. Let's <laughs> close in prayer. Father, your grace abounds to us. Your grace abounds to us in giving us the example of Esther and Mordecai and their struggle with Haman and his hatred and pride. Lord, also as we look at Peter, we know that you care for us, you love us. You will nurture us and keep us for eternity through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.